Well, today we're going to wrap up our current uh, series in the book of Romans. We've been here for 12 weeks, and uh, we're going to conclude in Romans 15. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn there with me. Uh, As we start, I just want to begin by asking a question. Do you ever feel like there's something missing in your life, that there should be more to life than what you're getting? Do you ever just sort of feel like you're stuck in a rut, that it's just all about work and taking care of the house and bills and groceries, and that there's got to be more? Have you ever had a season in your life that felt that way? Let me see your hands. Most of us have been there. A lot of us may be there now. Oftentimes, when we feel that way, the missing piece can be that we have failed to either recognize or connect with God's calling on our lives. For every one of us, God has a calling, something really special and important that he's designed us to do. Now, obviously, he's made us for a relationship with himself, but beyond that, he left us here on earth because he wants us to have a real impact. And to that end, he has a calling for us to live out, and it's far more than just a job to go to. Today, we want to talk about fulfilling God's call on your life as we look to Romans chapter 15. Now, I'll tell you... As we're about to start reading, that chapters 15 and 16 mark a real shift in gears from the rest of the book of Romans. If you've been with us through the past three months as we've been studying Romans, you'll recall that the first 11 chapters are the theology of the New Testament. I mean, they are the heavy lifting of the doctrines of the faith. And then when you get to chapter 12, he shifts gears significantly. And for three chapters, he just gives us item after item of, now that you understand what we're supposed to believe, here's what you're supposed to do with that. Here's how you live out your faith. And he packs more into three chapters than you would think is humanly possible in chapters 12, 13, and 14. But then in chapters 15 and 16, he shifts gears again. And now as he closes out this long letter, he, he begins to just talk about very personal matters. And I'll tell you, I've read the book of Romans countless times in my life, and most of the times that I ever read it, I would just sort of treat the last two chapters as if they were sort of throwaway chapters because it's like, okay, yeah, this is just the personal stuff he tacked on the end. That wasn't really for us. This is just Paul talking, you know, him personally up to these people personally. And chapter 16 is the most personal section of anything he ever wrote in the New Testament. I mean, he, he sends... 26 different individual people, real specific words of greeting. I mean, that's, that's very different. 26 different folks. And he sends seven different people's specific greetings out to the Christians in Rome. So it's a really personal final chapter. But in chapter 15, he begins to just share some of his heart and some of his thoughts and plans. And that's where we're going to pick up today. But I, I just want to point out that this is not just something that, oh, that was his personal stuff for them, but there's really some important instruction here for us as well. We're going to begin in verse 13. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Do you realize how much he has shifted gears since he started this letter? I mean, do you remember how in the opening chapters it was about the depravity of man and how everyone's turned against God and just sinking, spiraling lower and lower, and there's no one doing good, no one seeking God? 
But now, as he speaks to these people personally, he says, I'm convinced you're full of goodness, you're complete in knowledge, you're competent to instruct one another. And then he begins to talk about his own calling when he says, I've written you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of, of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with a priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. But it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. And this is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there's no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, therefore, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. Just recall where Paul is in, in the storyline. There's a terrible famine in Judea in the Holy Land. Christians are starving right and left. And so for quite some time, Paul has been calling on all the churches that he's planted in Asia Minor, in, in southern and central Turkey, and around in uh, Achaia and Macedonia, what is today Greece and Macedonia. And he's been calling on them to give generously and sacrificially so that he can take an offering back to the Holy Land to, to buy food to feed all these starving Jewish Christians there. And so that's why he's saying, before I can come to you, I've got to go through, take up this collection, and go to Jerusalem with that. He, he goes on to say, for Macedonia, verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. He's saying, since... It's through the Jews that the message of Christ went out. They owe it to the Jews to help them when they're starving. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. But Paul had some real concerns because he knew that it was going to be like going into a hornet's nest for him to return once again to the Holy Land and specifically to Jerusalem, where there were so many people out to get him. So he said in verse 30, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. It's interesting how that part of the story is going to play out. Paul is going to go to Rome, but he's not going to go the way that he wanted to. He is going to go through and take up this collection, and he's going to travel back to the Holy Land. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to be accused of crimes that he doesn't commit. And just as the same crowd that pursued Jesus and made false accusations against him, they're going to do a similar thing to Paul. He's going to wind up being arrested, 
and staying in prison in the Holy Land for two years. And then finally, he's going to make an appeal to Caesar, and he'll be carried. There will be a shipwreck and a wild, wild trip across the Mediterranean. And he'll wind up in Rome for two years. That's where the book of Acts concludes, is while Paul is spending two years in house arrest in Rome, awaiting his opportunity to see Caesar. And ultimately, he's going to have an opportunity to minister to many people and to strengthen the church, but it's going to be in chains in Rome. And then a few short years later... He's going to wind up being executed because of his faith. But he lays out what's on his heart as he continues in ministry in this chapter. And there are five things that I want you to take notice of as we look at this together. And it begins with just the simple statement that I've already made. And that is that God has a ministry calling for each one of us. He begins this section by saying, My friends, I myself feel sure that you are full of goodness and that you have all knowledge and that you are able to teach one another. You hear how he's shifting the focus now. He's been talking in general about what God has done and how Christians should live. But now he's saying, I want to talk to you about what already has been sown in you and about where you are and what you're capable of. He's setting them up now to deliver the message. Now it's time for you to embrace your call and to step into ministry because you've got it in you to serve the Lord as a minister. And it's interesting to see how Paul uses his own life as an example. He says, you know, I've been bold because of the privilege that God has given me of being a servant of Christ Jesus to work for the Gentiles. I serve like a priest in preaching the good news from God in order that Gentiles may be an offering acceptable to God. He's talking about his own calling and how he's lived that out. Now, I want you to consider for a moment, what was Paul's profession? When we think about Paul, we think, missionary or pastor, right? I mean, he's the greatest missionary the world's ever known. There is no close second in the history of the world to Paul when it comes to missions. And yet, he was not a professional missionary. What did Paul do throughout his life? He was a tent maker. That's what he did for a living. Throughout, that's what he did to support himself. Again and again, he had to address this. Yes, I could have asked you for money, but he says instead, I worked for a living. Ministered on the side. And yet, when you look at Paul's life, we don't care that he made tents. He wasn't defined by his profession. The thing that defined Paul was the call that God had on his life. And he says, well, my calling was really clear. It was to take the good news of Jesus to the Gentile world. We look at that and go, well, you know, what's the big surprise about that? It's a huge deal in the first century. This was a Jewish movement. I mean, even Jesus said, I didn't come for the Gentiles. I came for the lost sheep of Israel. And so it was a radical thing when God saved Paul and sent him out. And he specifically sent him to take the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. And Paul is acknowledging, boy, this has had amazing fruit with it because there's been all this power from the Holy Spirit. Signs and wonders and massive numbers of people coming to faith in Christ. And he's just reflecting back on the fact that, I have just simply walked in the calling that God had for me, just a poor tent maker, to go out and to tell Gentiles about Christ. And the world has been forever changed because of God's call on Paul and how that played out. And Paul is saying, I want you to get that God has sown things into you, that you are well equipped. And God has a calling for you. I want you to look at your neighbor right now and just declare to them God has a calling on your life. Tell them like you mean it. Oh, that was kind of whispered right there. With some conviction, God has a calling on your life. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that? Here's the problem. In American culture, we have allowed ourselves to be defined by our professions and our careers. Wouldn't you agree with that? That just becomes who we are. I mean, when we meet people, it's the first thing that we ask about. What is it that you do? Wouldn't it just blow people away if we answered with some sense of, this is God's calling on my life, you know, and tell them about what God has called us to do instead of saying, I'm an accountant, I'm a nurse, I'm a lawyer, I work in sales. Because the way that we've, we've learned to think about life is so wrapped up in what we do that it, see if this doesn't line up with your experience. It's like we come through high school and, and either go out into the work world or go to college, and during those next few years, we're trying to figure out what is it I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And when, we, when we're thinking that, what are we talking about? We're talking about career, right? What am I going to do to keep money coming in and put a roof over my head and food on the table? What am I going to do? And we're trying to figure out what am I going to do that's going to be fulfilling, that I'll enjoy, that I'll be good at, that I can make the most money at so that I can retire the earliest that I can, right? And we pour ourselves into that, and our hope is that it will be fulfilling, but even more so that it will be a big money maker. And our big aim is what? That we'll be able to retire as early as possible, right? Isn't that like the universal goal of Americans? Make enough money so you can retire as early as possible. Now, if you're a Christian, the thing that you tack on to that is I go to church, and if I'm a really committed Christian, I may find somewhere to give something back. I might teach Sunday school or work with kids or work with the teenagers or host a small group. I might have something that I give back as my little piece there. But we all understand it's an unspoken thing. As soon as I financially get to the point that I don't have to work anymore, I'm going to put the brakes on this baby. I'm going to shut down this career, and I'm going to travel. I'm going to live the life that I always longed for. And whatever it was that I used to do back at the church, I'm going to retire from that too. Because I don't want anything getting in the way of living the life that I've been building toward for decades. This is why I pursued a career, so I could be free, nothing tying me down, and then I can live like I want to live. And that has nothing to do with God's kingdom or God's plan for your life. That is a worldly way of looking at life. And I'll tell you that that approach never leads to a fulfilling life. It just doesn't. It's life lived upside down. If we turn that whole thing upside right, it would look more like this. Career, job, sure, it's a part of the package. It's just the thing that I do to make sure that we've got money and, and a home and, and food, the, the necessities of life. I do a job so that I am free then to embrace God's calling on my life. Now, the, the place where it's nice how those things overlap is the, the small percentage of us who do, do vocational ministry, where they're one and the same. My calling, I also happen to get paid to do. But we've gotten this so turned around that it's kind of like, well, the called people are the professional Christians. It's the pastors and the worship leaders and the missionaries, right? Wrong. I am no more called to ministry than you are. Let that one sink in. I am no more called to ministry than you are. Every one of us, God has a divine call on our lives to represent Him in the world, to embrace a specific role, to make a difference. 
I just happen to be in that percentage that get paid to do that. Paul wasn't. Paul impacted the world a whole lot more than I have. He was a tent maker. He wasn't defined by that. The thing that defined him was his calling. What he did for a living was so secondary. It's really been interesting to watch how things are kind of getting just confused in our culture in a lot of different ways. But in terms of profession, and, you know, it hadn't been that many years ago. I don't know what the statistics are now, but where the statistic had been a decade or two ago that the average person in the American workforce would work in seven, not just seven different jobs, seven different career fields in the course of their entire career, which was really kind of shaking up the the whole situation. It was sort of fruit basket turnover career-wise because in most generations past, Somebody figured out what they were going to do, and they did it for the rest of their lives, right? I mean, most of us in here, didn't your parents pretty much do the same thing for all of their, their adult life? My dad was a pharmacist from the time he graduated from Auburn until he retired in his mid to late 60s. That's all he ever did. That was kind of the norm. You just you did something for life. And then this thing changed, and suddenly people are changing, doing career after career after career. And now we're watching another generation come along, and have you noticed how confusing it is to watch them and try and figure out what in the world they're going to do career-wise. And for most of us, in my generation and older, we're looking and you're shaking our heads going, they don't have a clue. They're never going to be able to support themselves. They can't figure themselves out. But have you listened to what they're saying? They're frustrated. They can't figure out why they can't find in the work world something that's really satisfying, something that really turns them on. And, I mean, I've had conversations with different ones of you about that and, you know, shared my frustrations at watching some of that. It's like, would you get over it? You need a job. You need a job that pays the bills. It really doesn't matter if you, if you feel super fulfilled by that. you got to get a job, and you got to stick with a job. But the thing that we need to get in both generations about that is an understanding that the thing that the younger generation is looking for really does matter. It's just been a bit confused. They're looking for something that's really going to be satisfying, that's going to really connect with their hearts and let them know that their life does make a difference. And the thing that we need to help them grasp is it's usually not going to be your job. Your job is important, but for most of you, your job isn't your calling. Your calling may impact what you do on the job. Hopefully it will, but it's not going to be about your job. Your calling is so much bigger than that. And it doesn't end the day that you retire from your job or that you change jobs. And it's important that every generation grasp this. God has a calling on our lives. Now, the $64 question is, how do you figure out what your calling is? I mean, it's hard enough just to find a job that doesn't make you want to pull your hair out, right? Hard enough to figure out a job that you can support your family. Now you're telling me that on top of that, I need to be seeking out this call from God thing. That's exactly what I'm telling you. Because it's so much more important. It's so much more satisfying, and it has such a greater impact on the world. How do you figure out and discern what God's calling is for you? We're going to unpack that more as we move through the, the passage today. But I will just say this. There is a progressive nature, typically, to understanding what your calling is. I know that's been the case in my own life. Philip, let me just ask you, I don't know if I'm just noticing this more today, but is this, is this mic 
giving us trouble. Do I need to change mics? Okay, all right. I just, I'm hearing popping, but okay. In my own experience, when I look back at just coming to terms with God's call on my life, how did I become aware of that? I realized it took a lot of years just to understand the basics about this. For me, it started when I was 14 years old. I'd already been a Christian for a number of years. And just the first awareness that I ever had, I remember going away to a youth camp at a place called The Vineyard. It's in the boonies of South Alabama. And in that environment, I was there by myself and just, which was really a unique thing because it really allowed me to center in on what God was saying and doing. But in that environment where God was moving so powerfully all around me, for the first time I became aware that God had something special that he had designed me for. I didn't have a clue what that meant. But that seed began to be planted and an excitement began to stir in me to realize that it wasn't just this thing of, oh yeah, you're lumped with a couple of billion other people, you're in the family of God. It was no, God has noticed you personally and has a calling for your life. No clue what that meant. But I knew that was good, it was personal, and it was special. And that was kind of all that was there that was stirring for the next couple of years. It was just enough to make me hungry to seek the Lord and try and discern, what, what does that even mean? And then I remember as a 16-year-old, the first time in my life that I ever heard the voice of God. It's not the first time God had ever spoken to me. It's the first time God had ever spoken to me in that way that it was, oh my goodness, did anybody else in the room hear that? It was, I can tell you word for word what he said. Unfortunately, it was one sentence. And I wanted a lot more than that one sentence because it left a lot of questions. But it was about his call on my life. I'd gone to a little church outside of town again by myself. As a 16-year-old had gone out there to hear this uh, traveling evangelist speak. And in the middle of him preaching, God spoke to me. He didn't speak through what the guy was preaching on. He just spoke to me personally about his call on my life. I remember it just freaked me out because I'd never heard God speak to me that way before. And I had a lot of questions about what he said. My heart's beating out of my chest. And I'm thinking, did nobody else hear that? Obviously not. Nobody else is freaking out. God was beginning to define his call on my life. Now, I will tell you, I spent the next couple of years trying to figure out how to take the call of God and combine it with what I wanted in life and make those two things work together. And so I'm like, okay, I know God has a calling for me. I know I'm supposed to make a difference in the lives of others. I'm supposed to share Christ. But I want to make a lot of money. So I want to go into medicine. That would make a lot more money than anything I could think of in ministry. And I'd promise God, I'll share the gospel with every patient. I'll pray with every patient. Just let me do this and make a lot of money because I want to own an airplane one day. That was how I thought as an 18-year-old. And for the next three years, that was kind of my plan. And I went to Alabama and was you know, going pre-med and majoring in chemistry and loving what I was studying and just gobbling up the chemistry and physics and biology and calculus and all that stuff, enjoying what I was studying. But each summer, I would go back and work at that camp where God had first really spoken in my life as a teenage camper. And as I got to work as a counselor and eventually kind of as the um, camp director or the, the kind of in an emergency situation, I had to spend several weeks overseeing what was going on in the camp and just had an opportunity to experience God working powerfully each summer and came to the realization just summer after summer of being immersed in what God was doing and realizing God wasn't trying to punish me or rob me of anything, but that there was nothing in life that I would find as fulfilling as vocational ministry. And so I said yes to that as a college student in Alabama, changed my major, and 
began to prepare then to go into graduate school, divinity school. And I can't really explain other than to say that over a span of the next two or three years, as God began to open doors of opportunity to preach and minister just as a college student, that there was an awareness that I can't define for you how it came about, but that I just realized this thing that God was preparing me for was at least in part to be a pastor for me. And I, I knew that wasn't coming soon. I had a strong sense that that wasn't like going to immediately happen, but that that was something that I was to prepare for and that I was to connect with other leaders and learn from them. And so I spent a number of years, a bunch of years in school and a bunch of years interning under other people, working my, my first two church positions, as I've shared with you before, being a custodian in a couple of churches just to get to be around people who were doing ministry and learn from them and mopping floors in between. And it wasn't until I had spent several years as a student pastor that at about the age of 30, that for the very first time, God put it in my heart, the next major piece in recognizing his calling on my life, that it wasn't only as a pastor, but that it was very specifically as a church planter. And the only reason I'm sharing this as specifically as I am is just to try and give you an example of wrestling with God's calling. This seems, it's weird how God will use little things. It seems so small and insignificant, but I remember the day that God did something so tiny that was so significant in my life. I don't remember who, but someone had passed on to me an article that they had photocopied. This was before we all passed everything along by links on the internet. They had photocopied, and I still remember in a church office, you know how, well, Barry, you've been on church staff before. You, you know how people leave the, the wrong color paper in there because they were doing something. Somebody left green paper in there. And they had printed accidentally green copies of this magazine article. That's insignificant, but it, just, it still stands out. that this Somebody put this stack of green papers on my desk. There's some article about church planting. I had no interest in church planting. But one day I'm cleaning off my desk, and I'm like, oh, I've never read that stupid green article that somebody passed on to me. I'll take a minute and read it. It's a long article, and, and I start reading it, and it's just like something grabs me in that moment. I've never had an interest in this, and suddenly I can't put it down. It's like I'm not just reading an article that somebody's written. It's like God is suddenly speaking to me as I'm reading this photocopied article that I can't even remember where it came from. And in that moment... My life, I didn't realize it then, took a major shift. I'm a student pastor at Calvary Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And yet God has just spoken through reading a photocopied article in a way that I'm never going to escape. In the coming months, a guy from Fairhope would call and ask if I'm interested in you know, serving on staff as a student pastor at First Baptist Fairhope. Never saw that coming. That didn't make any sense to me how that would fit into God's plan. And yet, in all of that, God was setting this thing up to embrace the next major part of his calling for me, which, for me, was pastoring and church planting. I tell you all of that to say, that unfolded over a span of 16 years. There were a lot of other tiny things in between, but the point being, it can take a long time to recognize the different parts of God's calling for your life, but I didn't have to wait 16 years to begin serving the Lord. A big piece of embracing God's call in my life was just finding ways to serve Him and con to connect with ministry and with people that God was using and speaking through at every point along the way. And as I partnered with Him in different ways, God began to make things clearer and clearer along the way. Many of you could share similar stories, I'm sure. 
of how coming to a recognition of God's call on your life didn't come instantly. It's taken time, and he's used people to reveal that. But God has a calling for each of us. The second thing I'll say is this from the, the scripture that we read, is that God greatly uses people who don't try to take credit for what he does. Notice what he says in verses 17 and 18. He says, So I have reason to be enthusiastic about all that Christ Jesus has done through me in my service to God. Would you agree with that statement? <coughs> Holy smokes! Nobody that ever served Jesus did more than Paul. Nobody impacted the world like Paul did. He said, Yeah, I guess I've got reason to be enthusiastic about what God has done. I would think so. You ought to be living a pep rally every day, Paul. I mean, God's all over you. Everywhere you go, churches are planted. The kingdom is exploding on the scene. But he says, yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God by my message and by the way that I worked among them. You hear what he's saying? saying as much as God has blessed and all of his power has been poured out and all these churches that have planted and lives changed, but here's what you're going to only hear from me. You're only going to hear me bragging on Jesus and what he's done because it's not about me. It's a great reminder to every one of us. The quickest thing to sidetrack what God wants to do in your life is a need for you or me to get credit for what God is doing. I think it's Rick Warren who has said, there's no limit to how much God will do through you so long as you don't care who gets the credit. Or put another way, so long as you don't try and take the credit for what God is doing. It's our need to be recognized that will stand in the way of what God wants to do. I remember back in 1999 and 2000 when uh, Louis Giglio and the Passion Movement were really exploding on the American college and, and young adult scene. And I remember how there was a shift along about 99 or 2000 with a focus, and 268 was their theme. Everything had 268 printed on it. It was a reference back to Isaiah 26.8 that was the theme of that ministry, which to me is a reflection of why God has used Louis in such a huge way. Isaiah 26, 8, as you'll see in your outline, says, Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Here's the part I want you to remember. For your name and your renown are the desire of our hearts. God, it's your name. It's your renown that we're all about. Do you hear what he's saying in that? That God is calling out a generation who are not going to be interested in being recognized for what they've done professionally or where they live, that their hearts would be set on this thing above everything else. God, it is the advancement of your name. It's your reputation. It's making you known and making sure that you get all the credit that you deserve. That's what we're about, God. Everything that we do is going to be built toward this one thing. We just want to advance your reputation, God, because it's all about you. It's all for you. The, the little group of guys that I'm in a discipleship relationship with right now, the study that we're doing right now is a, it's a great book by Ogden on uh, Christian leadership. And our, our study for this week, he said this, because he's talking about how most of us, most successful Christians, particularly most successful ministers, he talks about how they're driven people. And he says, driven people are ambitious to obtain worldly acclaim. We desperately need to be recognized. 
But he says those with a call, that's what we're talking about today, those with a call are ambitious to advance God's glory. And there's all the difference in the world. One of my all-time favorite preachers, and if you were to have anyone who knows about preaching and, and history to list the ten greatest pastors in the last thousand years, everyone's list would include Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He might hit the list. I mean, he just had an anointing like few in the history of the world ever have. He ministered in the 1800s in, well, in a lot of places, but his base of operations was in London, New Park Street Chapel a lot of that time. If you've never really read much about Spurgeon, his, his biography, is he was just an extraordinary person. God was all over him, and he was an amazing pastor and preacher and God used him to just bring revival in so many places. I mean he was by age twenty one people every week lined up by the thousands to come and hear him preach. Just an extraordinary person. Spurgeon said of himself and his ministry Success can go to my head and will unless I remember that it is God who accomplishes the work that he can continue to do so without my help, and that he will be able to make out with other means whenever he wants me out. That's somebody who has a pretty firm grasp on the fact that this is God's work, and he doesn't need my help at all. And the moment that I think that it's about me, God is completely capable of removing me from the equation and advancing the cause without me. And he may just very well do that. This is a big one for us to get, and the only reason I'm camped on it for just a moment longer is because the Scripture is really clear on this, and, and life will bear this out. Pride is a gigantic stumbling block for us, the need to be recognized, and to get in the way of God just getting credit for all that's going on, and it is such a huge roadblock. The problem is pride is deceptive, and that's what the Scripture says. In other words, the people who struggle with it don't realize that they struggle with it. And the part that I really don't want to admit to you is how much the Holy Spirit has had to deal with my heart recently in this very area. Pride is deceptive. And the people who are convinced that they don't struggle with it, a lot of times are the ones who struggle with it the most. And in my, I mean, I have to laugh or cry one on this point because God has just put his finger on my heart on this issue. Because, I, you know, in dealing with this, I have to wrestle with this stuff before I preach it to you. So I've already been worn out on these issues before I get to you on Sunday. And, you know, this is one of those that I'm like, well, God, I don't really struggle with this, do I? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty clean in this area, aren't I? And the Holy Spirit just said, why don't we revisit that for a minute? I'm like, God, what have I got pride over? I don't like admitting this to you. Because, I mean, he got really specific. He said, you you know, I, I've noticed something lately in your life. That church down the road that you used to pastor, they changed the name of it. And it's still just going and blowing and, and growing, doing great. You sure do often need to mention to people that you're the founding pastor of that church. What's that about? To which I'm like, but I am. <laughs> I did. I pastored it for 11 and a half years. Don't you remember? God, if you don't remember, it was going great when I left there. He's like, yep, it's doing great with you gone too. They hadn't slowed down a bit. They may have picked up the pace since you left. To which I want to just go, 
yeah, but God, if I hadn't started it, he's like, you want to finish that sentence? Do you think I would have been shorthanded? Have you somehow, since you left, decided that that was actually about you? I don't like his woodshed, but God is faithful. And I mean, I'm, I'm making light of it, and the truth of the matter is it's really not, for me it's not a light thing when you really get down to it, because I've had to realize my ego, just when I think it's dealt with, just wants to rear its ugly head and say, okay, our church isn't really going just blowing and everybody noticing us and recognizing us as one of the hundred fastest growing churches in the country. So somebody give me a pat on the back for what I've done in the past. To which God is saying, is it not sufficient that my call on your life hasn't changed and that you get to serve me today? Does the number of people in the room change how pleased I am with what you do on any given day? Okay, enough about that. It is a big deal that we remember that God greatly uses people who don't try to take credit for what he does. A third thing is that we all need spiritual dreams, goals, and plans as to how God will use us. I hear that so strongly in what Paul is saying, beginning in verse 20, when he says, It's always been my ambition. Everybody say ambition. It's always been my ambition. Can Christians have ambition? Yep, barely. To preach the gospel where Christ was not known. What was Paul's ambition? In simple terms, what's Paul saying was kind of his secret dream always? Not just to preach the gospel anywhere. Where did he want to preach the gospel? He wanted to start from scratch. I can really identify with this. It's part of what God puts into the heart of a church planter that you want to go where there isn't something and have an opportunity to build from scratch. I used to think that would be awful, and now I absolutely love it. And Paul said, I don't just want to go where there's not a church. I want to go where they've never heard of Jesus and have an opportunity to build where there was nothing. I can only imagine part of the reason that Paul felt so strongly about this was he always had to deal with those hard-headed Jews. I mean, you know, the ones that were always saying, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus the law. Paul, you're not, you're not teaching the law. And, you know, he was just always like getting bogged down in the mud of the legalism of the Jews. And he's like, wouldn't it be nice to just go somewhere where there was none of that background? We could just start from scratch and say, there is a God, one true God who made the world. Let's start with that. And they could just say, really? We never heard of that God. Great. That's where I want to begin. Paul said, I wanted to start from scratch with some people. And he says, since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you all passing through and have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. As you read the whole passage, you see him again and again talking about what he's planning to do, what he's dreaming to do. What's he dreaming to do? I dream to go where the gospel has never been and to plant churches there. It's like, well... I used to read that and think, Paul, have you like dozed off somewhere along the way and forgotten what you've been doing? What do you think you've been doing for the last 20 years? It seems like everywhere you've gone, the gospel is news and you've planted another church. And he's like, I know, but I want to go somewhere where even the Jews haven't come and shared the pre-gospel, where they haven't even had that. I want to go where it's just completely outside the reach of Christianity and Judaism, I want to take the gospel to those places. And so he said, I set my sights on Spain. 
Now, I realize not everybody is a geography mind, so if you're, if you're, forgive me if you already know the geography, you probably do. But you remember the Mediterranean's laid out like this. You've got Jerusalem, Israel, the Holy Land at one end of the Mediterranean, and Spain is at the far other end of it all, and Italy and Rome are just right smack dab in the middle of all this. Paul has been working his way over and over around the Med. He's made, in fact, if you've got your Bibles, pull them out. Turn to the part we never turn to. Turn to the maps. And if your Bible is like most everyone I've ever owned, probably the last map that you have in your Bible is the missionary journeys of Paul, right? I think three people in the room have a Bible. Everybody else has got your phone. So, For the three who have a paper Bible in hand, turn to the maps. And everybody got Paul's missionary journeys? It should be the last map. It's a picture of a good chunk of the mid. Paul always starts over here in the Holy Land. And all of these little arrows and stuff, he's just been back and forth through what is today Turkey, the southern half of Turkey. He's planting churches all over the southern half of Turkey on his... Uh, Early trips, he passed through Cyprus and planted a church there. But over and over, he's been through Turkey, and he begins to work his way further around the mid. He crosses over into Macedonia and Greece, and over and over, he's planting churches in all these places. But what he's sharing is, I want to, he says, I, listen, I've used this all up. I've been back and forth. That's why there's so many lines. You've been back and forth and back and forth in all of these areas that were Asia Minor, Achaia, and uh, Greece. And he says, what I want to do is I want to get to the heart of the empire. I want to make it all the way to Rome. But he says, that's not really my goal. I know it would be incredibly influential and important to get to plant churches and, and strengthen the church in Rome. But where I want to get is way over here in Spain. You may not know this, but in the first century, Spain had become a real cultural center for civilization in that part of the world. So many of the brightest minds and most gifted people were coming out of Spain in the first century. But the gospel had not gone to Spain. And Paul's like... That's where I want to go. I want to go as far as the other end of the Mediterranean. I mean, that's just unheard of. And he's like, as long as I'm going to go there, I've got to pass right by the boot of Italy. I'll stop in Rome and stay there a spell. And I'll strengthen the church, and I'll, I'll really make an investment there. And after a time, I'll travel on to Spain. All of that to say, Paul in his ministry, he had real heart drives, passions, desires, but he had some plans and goals for what he wants to do. Now, here's the hard thing to, to hear in this. Apparently, there's a good chunk of what Paul dreamed about that he never got to do. To our knowledge, Paul never got to Spain. Now, there are some people, there's a branch of Christian tradition that says, oh, there was a window of time when Paul was released from his two years of imprisonment in Rome and before he was imprisoned again that he got loose, that he went to Spain and ultimately made it to what is now Great Britain. But there's not a lot of evidence to bear that out. It would, history would seem to suggest that Paul never made it to Spain, that he never fulfilled a lot of what he dreamed of doing in terms of going that far west. But it's okay. He lived out God's calling for his life. And he had dreams and goals all the way up until they took his head off for preaching Christ. Now, we could say, what a tragic story. He never got to finish doing what he set out to do. That's not tragic. He spent most of his adult life doing what God called him to do. And he never quit dreaming, and he never quit planning, and he never lost ambition to take it another step further. And that's how we need to live. I, I love who we are as a church. 
I'm thrilled to be right here with you. There's nowhere else on earth I want to be. I want to be right here shepherding the work that God has planted that is Freedom Church. But I can tell you as the pastor of Freedom Church, God has planted desires and dreams for this church that are beyond where we are right now. And the good thing that I can tell you about that is most of that has little to do with buildings and programs. And it has much to do with the power and work of the Holy Spirit enabling us to expand the scope of our ministry in ways that we can't manufacture on our own. Where we would be a church that grows up, where there's a real multiplying effect in terms of leadership training, and God's giving real specific instructions about how to do some of this, investing in leaders for very specific periods of time who are then committed themselves to turn around and invest in other leaders in a multiplying way, taking them through specific development stuff so that we have a strong network of leaders emerging who are fully equipped ministers. That has nothing to do with whether they ever get paid to do ministry. Fully equipped ministers who embrace the whole work of the Holy Spirit in a way that over time that freedom grows spiritually in a way that our ministry develops so that there's a real healing ministry that's embraced here, that there's a real prophetic ministry that's embraced here, that we would embrace all of the work of the Holy Spirit and that along the way, yeah, we need to find another place to meet that's going to give us some better opportunities than some of what we have on Friendship Road. And oh, by the way, as we're talking about dreams and ambitions and things that don't always come to fruition, we have hit a complete brick wall with the building that I've been sharing with you about. Yeehaw. Here we go again. The fire marshal has shut down our plans, and they have the power to do that. He has said no to what we have been working for months to do at this specific building on 98, to which I want to stomp my feet and say, No! But I don't have a whole lot of control over this. And I don't know what God's saying in that. I'm praying and seeking Him about that. I'm praying that God will change his heart and open a door there. But if that's not where we're supposed to go, that he'll show us a place that's as good or better than what we've been working on. We'll continue to pursue that part. That is a part of the plan. I want you to continue to pray. Please do, because something's going to have to happen in the heavenlies in order for this to be shaken loose here on earth. Because we can't afford to be where I feel like we need to be. But we need an opportunity to relocate. That's not going to be the first and most important thing, but it is a piece of the plan. God wants us as a church to dream and plan toward what's coming next and what God has planned for us, even though sometimes our plans won't turn out to be exactly what God had intended. That's okay. He loves when we dream and plan toward what we sense that he wants us to do. So always be dreaming and planning. Here's the simple question I have for you. When you think about your life and God's call for you, if you eliminate fear of failure and worry about what anybody else would say or think of you, what is your greatest dream? What's the, what's the thing that you just would love it if God would let you do or enable you to do in service to Him? Maybe that's not a place that you let your mind and heart go very frequently. I want you this week to, to meditate on that one. What's your grandest dream for how God could ever use you? That's a good beginning point toward wrestling with God's calling on your life. To dream, but also to have goals and plans that line up with that dream. A fourth thing 
and I'll just say this quickly, is that we notice in the passage that it's important to remain faithful to the last thing God called you to do until you have a fresh assignment from God. Paul said, you know, I have now finished my work. Finished is a key word there. I finished my work in these regions. That's in Turkey and Greece and Achaia. And after these long years of waiting, I am eager to visit you. But before I come, I must go to Jerusalem to take a gift to the believers there. And as soon as I've delivered this money and completed this good deed of theirs, I will come see you on my way to Spain. Paul has been wanting for years to get to Rome. It's the seat of power for this vast kingdom, the most important kingdom in the world from an earthly standpoint. He's been dying for years to get to Rome, but he can't go until he finishes his assignment in all the region that I just pointed out to you on the map. And he said, even now, before I come to you, I've got one final thing to do. I'm making this pass through these churches. I'm going to Corinth and Ephesus and all these other places where I have been telling them now for months, take up a collection, collect all that you can, and I'm going to pick that all up, and I'm going to take it to the Holy Land, and it's going to supply a huge need there and save a lot of lives. So he said, I've got to make this pass through. It's going to take time. Yeah, it's going to take some time. It's going to take you more than two years because you're going to sit in prison for two years even after you get there. But the point is, I cannot come to you. I just can't drop what I'm doing and come to you until I finish the last thing that God told me to do. Now, here's the only question I want to ask you about that. If you're trying to figure out God's call for your life and what he has for you right now, are you currently doing the last thing that God told you to do? Because here's where I find a lot of Christians today. They're wrestling with, what does God want me to do? And when you say, well, what are you doing right now in service to the Lord? Well, not really doing anything. Because I just don't know what he wants me to do. What's the last thing God told you to do? Well, I'm not sure. Well, you may have to rewind away, rewind quite a ways back to the last thing and say, am I being faithful to that? Well, I used to work with children. Do you feel like that's what God had called you to do at that time? Yes. You're not real clear on what the next assignment is? No. Well, then why don't you continue doing the last thing God called you to do until you get clear about the next assignment? As a teenager, one of the key people that God used in my life to really help me learn to follow Christ was a guy named Wes. He was my student pastor, and he always had this mantra that he drove into us. You go where you're sent, you stay where you're put, and you give what you've got until God gives you another assignment. That sounds like a no-brainer, doesn't it? But that's huge. Go where you're sent. Stay where you're put. There are too many church hoppers in the world. Too many people looking for the hottest coolest place with the most to offer and that jump from church to church. Go where you're sent, stay where you're put, give what you've got until God gives you a different assignment. You don't just get to hop around and flit around. Stay where you're put. Do the last thing God told you to do, to do until he gives you a fresh word for a different assignment. We on the same board there? Same page there? Are you with me? One more and we're done. The fifth thing. Prayer and spiritual mentors are major helps in discovering your ministry calling from God. He says at the conclusion of the chapter, Brothers and sisters, I encourage you through our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love that the Spirit creates to join me in my struggle. He's trying to get them on board. You've got to embrace your part in what God's doing. How do you do that? Well, for starters, pray to God for me that I'll be rescued from those people in Judea who refuse to believe. Boy, did he need that prayer. Pray that God's people in Jerusalem will accept the help that I bring. And also pray that by the will of God I may come to you with joy and be refreshed when I am with you. Two things that are happening in this passage. 
Paul is reeling them in to embrace their call by first saying, what I want you to do is pray, and then what I want you to do next is pray some more, and then I want you to pray again. Why is that such a big deal? Well, on the one hand, it's important to pray and say, God, you know, what is it that you're calling on my life? What have you built into me that I'm supposed to do? And, and that's good. We ought to pray for that. But it's interesting. That's not how Paul told them to pray. Paul told them to pray in line with the kingdom agenda. Hey, this is what God is up to. I want you to pray about these things. Pray that God would work in these ways. Well, how does that help you to discover your ministry calling? I'll tell you how. You begin to pray, like specifically, for this church and for the ministries of this church and what's going on in this church. And you pray for the kingdom things that are happening in this community, and you do it faithfully, and you press in. You know what you'll watch happen over time? Your heart will be drawn in specific areas as you pray. You will find that you are more passionate and that you more naturally linger on certain situations and certain ministries because your heart is drawn to them as you wrestle in prayer over those things. And you know what you're beginning to, to recognize in that? Oh, I may have a calling toward that. God has a passion that he's built into me about this particular thing. Now, I'll tell you the other piece that's just practical, that's so important as you're trying to find God's call on your life, is not just praying, but interacting with anointed people who really operate in the power and the leadership of the Holy Spirit who help you to recognize God's call on your life. And I'll just point this out as we close. Paul knew the reality of this in his own life. You know, Paul was a jerk who persecuted Christians and put them in prison until God intercepts him at the, Steving of, uh, at the stoning of Stephen in Acts 6 and 7. And then Paul kind of disappears for a number of years as he's getting grounded in the faith. And then he pops back up in Acts chapter 13 where it says, Here are a bunch of guys that named several different leaders in the church who are praying and seeking the Lord together as they're worshiping and they're fasting. And as this group of leaders are praying and fasting together in Acts 13, it says that the Spirit spoke and I said, I want you to set apart for me now Saul, who would become Paul. I want you to set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to. And then apparently within that group, the Holy Spirit began to clarify what that work was. And so they prayed and laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas and said, All right, guys, ship out. God's called you to go, and so they launched Paul's first missionary journey. He would spend the rest of his life taking missionary journeys and planting churches. Paul didn't come to terms with God's call in his life for that until he was in an environment where he was with a small group of other leaders operating under the leadership of the Holy Spirit who spoke into his life, who prayed and fasted with him, and together they discerned the call of God for his life and for Barnabas' life, and he lived out of that for the rest of his life. And oh, by the way, he embraced that as a means of helping others to recognize God's calling on their lives. So everywhere he went, he had a little tribe. Luke and Timothy and Silas and Barnabas, different guys that he would carry with him wherever he traveled and let them just be around what God was doing. And he spoke into their lives. Timothy was a young man for whom Paul was a father in the faith. And Timothy got to spend some time with Paul and was trying to figure out what was God's call on his life. And Paul was around to help him understand, God's calling you, Timothy, to be a shepherd. You're actually supposed to be a pastor in the local church. And he installed Timothy as a pastor. Timothy's so young, he's like, I don't have a clue what a pastor is. You have to remember, Timothy came up in a time when there weren't pastors. There were Jewish priests, and what they did didn't look much like a pastor. He's like, Paul, what's a pastor do? 
Paul pens his first letter back to Timothy when he, when he leaves him behind and says, I want you to camp out right here. I want you to be the shepherd of this congregation. What's a shepherd do? Paul writes 1 Timothy, a letter back to Timothy, and he says, Listen, Timothy, don't you let these people look down on you because you're young, but you set an example for all of them in life, in faith, in speech, in love, in purity. You set the example for them. And until I get there, I want you to, here's what a pastor does. You focus on reading the scriptures to the church, encouraging the believers and teaching them. And don't miss this. Do not neglect the spiritual gift that you received through the prophecy spoken over you when the elders of the church laid their hands on you. Give your complete attention to these matters. Throw yourself into these tasks so that everyone will see your progress. Do you hear what Paul's helping him do? He's helping him to come to terms with what his calling is and how you live this thing out. And he said, oh, you remember how you even first tapped into this, don't you, Timothy? It didn't happen in your quiet time. It happened when you were in an environment with a few other really godly leaders. And the power of the Spirit was present. And they laid hands on you and they prayed for you. And there was an outpouring on you that day. And there was a prophetic word spoken over you that day. And in that, there were gifts unleashed in your life. And there was, for the first time, an awareness of, oh my goodness, even little young Timothy over here has an anointing for ministry and for pastoring. What does that look like? Well, you'll learn. You'll grow in that. But there was something that was unleashed in terms of an anointing and, and, and a gifting, but there was a, an awareness that was raised as other leaders spoke into his life. Part of you coming to grips with God's calling on your life is not just going to come because you had your quiet time every day. It's going to come in an environment probably where you interact with one or more other godly leaders, people that you trust, people who walk with God. And who speak truth into your life. And who will recognize and call out things in you that you never would have seen in yourself. Spirit-filled companions and mentors are a key part of you recognizing God's calling on your life. It's a huge part of my story. And it probably is already in your life. Walking with people who walk with God is a big part of you recognizing what God wants to do in your life. Do you recognize what God's calling is for you? If so, are you operating in that? If you're not sure, are you willing to seek Him for that and to pursue that as the thing that's even more important than your job and your career? Would you join me right now as we go to the Lord in prayer? God, we give you thanks. You honor us by calling us to be a part of your work in the world. Thank you for that. We want to embrace that. I pray that right now, by the work of your Spirit, you would stir in us a hunger to seek you out and to find our place. I want to invite you right now, whether you're watching and listening online or here in the room with me, would you just right now from your heart say, Oh God, help me to recognize your call on my life. Whether you're 15 or 75, God doesn't want to waste a day of your life that you have left. Would you ask him to help you see how today and this week you can walk more fully in what he's called you to do? God, I pray that you would release your spirit among us to do a powerful work that would bring you much glory. And we give you thanks for that opportunity. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.